Welcome to the Treble Podcast. I'm your host, David Gertler. Treble is a business networking platform that helps professionals manage, grow, and most importantly, leverage their network for new business and career opportunities. Our podcast highlights business professionals and their stories. Join us to hear how some amazing people navigated or created their own career path and share business insights with us. Hi, everybody, and welcome. Uh, today, I have an extra special guest. It's not every day that you get to interview somebody who not only inspired you, um, but really keeps you motivated on a daily basis. Uh, but that's exactly what we have in store today. Today, I welcome Professor Michael Yusim. Mike is a professor of management and faculty director of the Leadership Center and McNulty Leadership Program at the Wharton School. His university teachings include MBA and executive MBA courses on management and leadership, and he offers programs on leadership and governance for managers in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors. He's, off the, he's also a prolific writer, which I can personally attest to. Um, there's some amazing, great material that he's authored over the years, and I have half a shelf worth of books. For those on the video podcast, I've got just a few of the books uh, that, that uh, he's written that I've had the pleasure of reading and learning from. Um, anyway, Mike, thanks so much for making time today. David, great to be here, and I really look forward to the dialogue. All right. Well, first, tell me a little bit about your current research. Current research, uh, a bigger project, and then a more specific agenda. The bigger project is to build on my own kind of working knowledge of how American big companies operate here in the US. I've got some feel from having interviewed many people who run uh, companies in the S&P 500. With a couple of colleagues, we looked at companies in India, same idea a couple of years ago, companies like Infosys and Tata, most of those companies are familiar to uh, many people in the US for sure. We then turned to China and spent time with Chinese executives trying to understand how the heck they run their firm. Uh, for example, we talked to the famous Jack Ma as part of that. And now, believe it or not, we have turned to Japan, a slightly different set of colleagues, uh, now including one in Japan. We've interviewed, we finished interviewing, over 100 uh, corporate CEOs of Japanese companies, some you've never heard of, some are like um, the Sonys of the world, right? We, we know some of those names, Toyota. And the agenda there, just to wrap it up, is to try to understand why, why Japanese companies went into a free fall back in 1990. They just stalled out. If you look at the Tokyo Stock Exchange Index, it went flat, it was flat, for a decade. In the last 10 years, though, and this is the thrust of our research, uh, many of these companies that had kind of gone stagnant in the world market, they just couldn't compete very well, they are staging an amazing comeback. Mm -hmm. That's partly because Japanese senior managers have broken with tradition, but of course, they also have retained some traditions, like a focus on more than shareholder return. And that's partly what makes the topic so interesting to us. Last thing I say, Dave, David, is that uh, as a separate project, we're looking at the consequences of the business roundtable statement back in August of 2019, in which uh, that group of CEOs that constitute the business roundtable stated that the purpose of the corporation is not just TSR, total shareholder return, but it's a lot more than that. It's helping suppliers, communities, the country and beyond. 
And so we're taking a look at the hard reality of whether companies indeed are responding to that call to arms to make capitalism with a somewhat softer touch. So David, there it is. <laughs> well, I mean, um, it would be fair to say you've been doing leadership research for a few years. That um, is correct. So, but I, I won't embarrass you by saying how many. Um, but I will ask you, how did you get into this? Where was it? High school, college, and you know, what what was that uh, defining moment for you in terms of a career path? All right, David, I love the question because I've had a few twists and turns that are unexpected. But my guess is. Many of your viewers and listeners have a very similar story. Life tends to be not too linear, and that certainly was my case. So as a high school student, I was into science and engineering, uh, planned to major in physics, which I did at the University of Michigan, chemistry, physics, engineering, that I studied that, I loved it, entered into a doctoral program in physics, believe it or not, fully intending to become a, a particle physicist, as was called at the time, uh, but the, the social sciences began to appeal to me. I, I'm an inveterate academic, so I still wanted to be in academic life. But I decided that um, social beings are a little more interesting to, for me personally to study than physical beings, and thus um, moved into the social sciences. Last little twist to my career, and David, I bet you've got one or two just like this. I'm part of a project here at the at the Wharton School, or part of a, a team really, to bring a new curriculum, a leadership curriculum, into our executive MBA program. That's a program, I think you know the nomenclature, in our case, for students to come back mid-career every other weekend to do an MBA a little bit belatedly. The average age is uh, over 35 on this a team that I was part of trying to work out how we're going to execute that curriculum. We had it all figured out for this executive MBA group, how we're going to do it, except we had nobody to teach a now required course on leadership. And the chair of the committee uh, turned in my direction and said, Mike, uh, since we failed to find anybody who could teach that topic, I guess it's you. And I said, to be honest, my only qualification is I knew nothing about it. He was ready for that, and it's a, a line that you probably have used too. I've used it. Uh, he said to me, Mike, you're going to be that much more objective, not knowing a thing about it. You got to do it, and I've been doing it for a while. So, David, there it is. The twists and turns of, of uh, our lives that just about everybody I know has been through at least a couple times. So, for, for you, um, that's it's fascinating. I didn't realize that um, you were thrust upon that having no background in leadership, because I've always thought of you synonymous with teaching excellence in leadership and management. Um, my question is, over the years, and I won't say decades, but years, right? Uh, over the many years, what's kept you excited about it? What's kept you motivated? Uh, you know, it's such a profound question, because to do to do work on a sustained basis, whatever it is. You might be a nurse in a hospital, you might be an academic like I am, you might be an engineer at uh, Intel. Uh, you really wanna come to work every day and love what you're doing. And uh, so far, so good in, in my own case, I've never had a day when I didn't wanna get to work. And in particular, what, what drew me to this terrain, broadly defined as leadership, is direct contact with people. This is sort of in the origin, direct contact with people who are in a leadership 
position, sometimes very senior. I interviewed, for example, at one point early in my career, the chief executives of a number of British companies. So I think the big banks in the UK, I think some of the great British companies that we know about, I managed to get into to literally interview the chief executives. And I walked out of this uh, set of interviews in London, did the same thing in New York with that element that's really kept me focused over, over many years, which is that people who have positions of responsibility for better and on some days for a lot worse uh, are having an amazing impact even in the private sector on hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. The color there, extremely high, the purpose of their agenda, extremely important. And uh, as my, uh, I guess, insatiable quest to find out how the universe works, whether it's particle physics or modern leadership, uh, I found my sweet spot. Um, have you had instances where, you know, uh, uh, again, uh, another fascinating thing I've learned so far is your background in, in STEM careers, physics, math, et cetera. Have you had instances where you've been able to draw upon your quantitative background in, in a leadership, which always seems to be more qualitative than quantitative, but right. what is your experience? Right. The quick answer is yes. I tend to, for me personally, work best. I find it most interesting if I'm looking at people more call it holistically and less statistically, I'll put it that way. I have done that kind of statistical work, it's very important, it's kind of a companion. For me personally though, just to give you one example, I became very interesting of the rescue of the 33 miners in Chile who were trapped about a decade ago, about a half mile below the surface with what looked like a fatal cave-in uh, by an opportunity that opened up, I was able to talk with the person who executed the rescue, the Minister of Mines for Chile. I was able to get in to see the president of Chile, talk to many of the people who were on the team that brought the 33 miners to the surface. It took several months. And uh, I've always found that when it's a, call it a small sample, though very important people who are composing that sample, the president of the country, for, for instance, that what works for me to help other people appreciate what they did, why they did it, how they went about it, how was leadership exercised in bringing these 33 lost miners back to the service, that that more qualitative, comprehensive method for me personally is the way to go. I do wanna champion though, both sides of that equation. We can learn so much with good statistics, good quantitative analysis, especially if it's coupled with good qualitative analysis as well. We need both. So speaking of both, I want to ask you if you had to choose, because I know how much you, you like to put people on a spot. So I'll put you a little bit of, if you had I'll to choose, I'll take it. <clears throat> would you prefer the research side or the teaching side? And again, I've seen your excellence in both areas, but if you had right. to choose, what's your favorite? Okay, David, I'm going to kind of slip by the question by saying, the two are totally reinforcing, at least for me. I won't speak for anybody else, but I have always found that teaching in the classroom, and I teach in a lot of different kinds of classrooms, and I work with companies uh, and many other kinds of institutions like hospitals directly, that my ability to bring to life what happens in the classroom depends enormously on having contact through research with the people who are making the world we live in. 
So for instance, when it comes to this rescue of the miners in Chile, uh, or for, I often draw upon uh, company incidents where I have been inside the company, I know what happened, I've talked to the people that made it happen. And I have found, at least in my case, bringing those tangible experiences, tangible contact with that world into the classroom is what livens up and hopefully makes the classroom experience indelible. Or to put that in a more negative uh, frame here, if people can't remember what happened in a given class, it was a waste of their time, it was a waste of my time. So that direct contact, whether it's actually statistical or in person or actually preferably both, has been absolutely vital to bring the classroom to life. That said, the number one test to me, for me of what's interesting for people who are in a classroom or in a company that I'm working with is, um, is this interesting to know something about, for example, how companies in China are operating? If it's not interesting, I don't want to do research on it. And by interesting, I mean the people who I'm trying to work with, for them to be able to strengthen their leadership, it has to, it really has to be gripping for them. And if it's not, I won't do the research for it. Interesting. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how teaching, um, your teaching, your style, the approach, classrooms, how has that changed over your, your um, tenure? Well, so hopefully it's become better, like leadership, here, here's the statement, leadership is life learned. Most of us are not as a matter of our DNA born a leader, even though there's an American phrase, that somebody is a natural born leader. I'm often suggested uh, picking up oh, this other people pick up on that phrase. Well, what about Nelson Mandela? He just seemed to have it naturally. He could speak eloquently. He committed to a country and, and his liberation from apartheid over many years. Wasn't he natural born? And I suppose there's some correctness in the argument, at least it came from his childhood, his parents, maybe his teachers, maybe even a sports coach along the way. But in my view, for um, the rest of us, or for a whole lot of us, leadership is learned. We begin to learn it from our parents, we learn it from teachers, we learn it from mentors, coaches, and the same thing for teaching. I don't think anybody's a natural born teacher. It's an acquired skill. I've had some really bad days. I've been criticized in the classroom. Uh, but the key thing there, and this is article number one of leadership, is you have to remain undaunted by setback. Easier said than done, I know, and I'm set, really set back from time to time. But the point I'm going to end with is to say this, that feedback in the classroom from students uh, has been vital for me over the years and going from a person who's not a natural born teacher to a person who at least is making my best effort. Here, here would be an example, David, just to make that more tangible. On occasion, I've invited uh, stage directors to come into my class, a live class, a stage director, professionals who advise actors on stage how to bring those parts to life. I've asked them to take a look at what I'm doing and during a coffee break to then step forward with me and in a public way, I invite the students to join us 
to give me feedback on how I was falling short and also what I was doing well. And I have to say, I learned, I've done that three times now. I have learned more in that 45 minutes, or in one case, just 15 minutes uh, during one of these coffee breaks about how to strengthen leadership by getting direct, tangible, immediate feedback on my own shortcomings in the first part of that course. By the way, a little color here. Just before we took the coffee break, I said to the students, there were about 60 in the room. They were all in this executive MBA program. Average age, I already mentioned, mid-30s, somewhere in their 40s or 50s, all kinds of occupations, attorneys, physicians, uh, company managers, nonprofit directors. I invited students if they want to see live feedback uh, to stick around and just join us here at the front of the classroom. Well, about two-thirds of the students did come forward to, to witness this. I was a little bit um, feeling awkward as I'm getting now some pretty harsh feedback, constructive, but uh, very direct. And uh, I guess back to the main point, I think they were there partly just to see me suffer a little bit perhaps, but also I think they were there themselves to see what they could learn above all. That's I think why they were there about what, by watching me and the feedback could learn for their own public presentations back in their workplace. So that's a long-winded answer of saying it's a, it's a lifelong process, having a teaching coach, people give you feedback, watching what happens, witnessing when you fall short, that's happened to me many times, um, and maybe above all, taking a, a lifelong vow to make the classroom exciting, energized, and extremely contentful. I wanna ask you specifically about COVID now. Um you know, we're emerging from COVID and I'm sure the university had in place, you know, virtual learning and things like that. What takeaways, you know, pros and cons would you have from that experience? You know, everybody is thinking about their own answer to that question because regardless of where we are, uh, in fact, we're doing this by Zoom today and not in person, uh, we have to become a master of the medium that is not interpersonal. I, th I think for years to come, so much work is going to be done that much more remotely. So here's what I've, I think I've learned so far, and I think everybody's got four or five answers. I think I'll give two. Number one, uh, I think we have to be committed to making the best of whatever the platform may be. It could be two-dimensional on Zoom or Teams. It could be three people in a room together. Whatever it is, um, no complaining, we got to get on with work. And when we only have two dimensions, we have to find other ways to personalize because we got none of the three-dimensional personalization to go with it. So that's, I think, one point, or maybe the, the almost like a premise, we got to get on, we have to become a master of, um, of two-dimensional communication like we have right now. It's going to be aided by AI in the years to come. It's going to probably include holograms and other methods. But in any case, it's not what we have done historically. Uh, number two, though, I think really importantly to keep in mind, the use of Zoom or Teams or other platforms for communication, and I do a huge amount of teaching on, on this platform as well, it has not only some well-known deficits, it's got some huge assets. Case in point, a couple of months ago, I ran a 
program abroad on management and leadership. And uh, I could have never flown there during the COVID period, but we had, I think it was about 70 relatively senior managers in a room, uh, an ocean away. And the provider there through making the best out of teams was able to make us almost feel like we were in the same room together. I couldn't shake hands, couldn't even do a fist bump, but I think this new medium opens up opportunities. And I actually think next couple of years are gonna be extremely creative as for example, webinars begin to use other methods also to bring it even further to life, even though it's remote or kind of with people who are not necessarily in our own time zone. So we got to master it and it's going to be a lot more out there. So which segues me into my, my wrap up question for you. Um, what's the future hold for you, Mike? What, what do you see yourself doing a year from now, five years from now? Yeah, here's the, I think the commitment I've, I've made to myself, uh, my family, and that is worried I am as we all are about leadership when it's not fulfilling its potential or it's an enormous crisis that needs as much leadership as can be provided. I do plan to stay active as a researcher on the topic. That's one way we commute those, uh, communicate those ideas, but also uh, provide opportunities for people to, in dialogue, think about leadership themselves. So think about President Zelensky of Ukraine an enormously difficult period for him, an enormously important period for the exercise of his leadership. He's a, he's a case in point. He's a, he's a paragon of leadership at the moment, in my opinion. And I think we owe it to ourselves and we owe it to people we can reach to look carefully at what the president of Ukraine has been doing, to look carefully at what those at the time back in 9-11 in New York City in the New York Fire Department, what they did, what they are doing. I've done that myself. I spent time with New York firefighters. It's important to look at companies now that are, that are bending, beginning to reconstitute how they operate, maybe more devolved, maybe more committed to uh, more than total shareholder return. My, my personal commitment is to learning as much as we can about the leadership that's gonna be required in the future in countries like Ukraine or companies that are facing enormously difficult circumstances or nonprofit organizations, medical centers and beyond that are facing hitherto unknown challenges for which a new kind of leadership is required. There it is. Mike, that, it's, it's so incredible, but I wanna add one thing to that, um, that future, which is not only learn, but inspire. Uh, you've inspired me. You've, undoubtedly inspired so many other people, so many students and associates uh, along the way. And I continue, I think you will continue to inspire. I'm going to wrap by by mentioning two things that I remember. Uh, and there are so many others, but two things that that um, I think are kind of apropos for, for this. One is at the end of your class, and this was in 1998, so way back, different technologies were visible, et cetera. You, you would head to our, our class, all the students there, stay in touch. Let me know what your virtual avatar address is as opposed to email address. Well, you know, here we are 24 years later on Zoom and we're doing our virtual avatar thing. So very uh, uh, prophetic on that regard. The other thing that always stuck with me, and again, there were so many lessons that I learned from you, Mike, but one of the things that always stuck with me was 
leadership was a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it becomes. And if you don't use it, it atrophies. And so I always think about what am I doing to inspire other people? What am I doing to help lead an organization? So, and that comes directly from you, uh, Professor Osim. Um, thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed our session today. Uh, thank you so much for making time, Mike. I really enjoyed spending time with you. All right, David. Well, thank you for having me on. I, I loved our dialogue. And just to come back to the final point, I'm going to end on that too. Leadership is something that is learned and that analog to keeping a muscle in tone, I think is totally on the money. And just to put that in slightly same, similar words, but a little bit differently, uh, isn't that the calling for us all to think about where we can make a difference and get on with making a difference. And even if we're a little bit intimidated by the prospect, there's nobody, no better way to make that difference than get out there, give it a try, learn from mistake, and keep charging ahead. David, great to talk with you. Awesome. Awesome. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Treble Podcast. If you're inspired by this story, want to network more effectively, and unlock new business and career opportunities, download Treble from the App Store today. You'll need to search for Treble Network, all one word. We're offering an exclusive deal for our podcast listeners to get a free premium membership with the promo code TreblePod. Again, use the code TreblePod to get a free premium membership on Treble today.